heads up because you are in the hood wood. I'm the Black Bandit KJ Green. Welcome you to another edition of Sports from the Hood. Coming up in this edition, college geography is starting to get out of control. We're going to look at massive shakeup in the college landscape. Did the women's national team take winning for granted? And it's why, why they're on the outside looking in the Women's World Cup. Dive on that. The curious case in Baltimore. Somebody needs to explain this to me because this makes no sense why an announcer gets suspended for telling facts. Take a look at the, uh, the Southern Divisions of the NFL, AFC and the NFC. Do a full preview of that. And a poor taste to get shake stick at. Including the Hood High Five, Fat Dab Head Slap, and the final word from the Hood. Crash helmets on and buckle those seatbelts. Right, sports from the Hoover coming at you. Let's go. KJ Green, welcome you back to another edition of Sports from the Hoodwood. And we'll start off with, first of all, if you're listening on a podcast, wherever it may be, greetings. Appreciate your patronage. If you're watching on YouTube, smash that like button and subscribe. We'll also detail all the various ways that you can contact, get in touch with the Hoodwood at the end of the show. But first, let's start out with some geography. Now, geography was always one of my favorite subjects. I don't think Snuffy cared too, cares too much for it, but it's actually my first subject in high school. My freshman year at Mount Healthy High School, my first period class was college prep geography. Taught by a very nice gentleman by the name of Mr. Walker, and he always addressed all the students by Mr. or Miss. I always thought he was a class guy, a real great teacher, one of my favorites. I like geography. I've always liked maps. But what's going on with college sports right now is a map stretching exercise that makes absolutely no sense. I read once where when the when Major League Baseball went to creating divisions that they went through convulsions trying to set up what divisions. I read that the Mets at one time wanted to be in the same division as the Giants and the Dodgers. Does that make sense? Mets are in Flushing, Queens. The Dodgers are in Chavez Ravine in L.A. The Giants were in Candlestick Point in San Francisco. I'm not even going to try to wrap my head around that one. They finally decided as a compromise because the Cubs and the Cardinals wanted to stay in the same division that they'd keep them in the East and Atlanta and Cincinnati were in the West. They made no sense and they didn't, re- they didn't rectify that until they created three divisions and finally put Atlanta in the East and Cincinnati in the Central. The Mets are still in the East. They're not in the same division as the Mets and the, uh, the Dodgers and the Giants. But anyway, the NFL, when they merged with AFL in 1969 and 1970, they had to figure out what divisions and who were going to be in what divisions. And they literally wrote out five different configurations, put them in a fishbowl, and Pete Rozelle's secretary drew the names, one of the five choices, out. That's why the Cardinals were in the East for the longest time. And even when they moved to Arizona, they were still in the NFC East. That was something, again, that was corrected when they re, uh, redrew the divisions in 2002. The reason I'm, I'm breaking down all of these different divisions and how they were set up is because of how college football is going through convulsions resetting its conferences. Are you confused? I mean, I know I am. I mean, I know last week that I broke the news that Arizona, Arizona State, uh, and Utah are following Colorado into the Big 12, out of the Pac-12, starting in the 24-25 season. 
Now, with the defection of Oregon and Washington to the Big Ten from the Pac-12, following the SoCal schools, effectively means that the end of the next, so this coming school year, in June, the Pac-12 will more or less effectively cease to exist. Or they're at least down to four teams, or four schools now, with the NoCal schools in California, Stanford, and Oregon State and Washington State, who just seem to be caught looking the wrong way when the boat went out and all the other teams went with it. Now, you figure that's going to be the demise of the Pac-12, or is it? Now, there is talk that the aforementioned four remaining schools might merge with the Mountain West, a nascent mid-major that is looking to boost its status. Though there has been talk that these no-cal teams, uh, Cal and Stanford, could jump to get this, the ACC. Hush, Nuffy, don't, don't, don't even start. I'm not even going to listen to you say that makes no sense. How Pacific Coast teams will be playing in the Atlantic Coast Conference. The closest ACC team to the no-cal teams right now is Notre Dame. It's 2,200 miles away. It's bad enough that Notre Dame's the ACC. But that's neither here nor there. Mountain West is one of the bigger mid-majors and fancies itself as a conference on the rise and it could force its way into powered conference status with an addition of these, uh, of some, if not all, of the remaining Pac-12, where's it, Pac-4 teams. I, I don't know. Now, the collapse of this conference lies directly at the feet of George Klivikov. He took over as Pac-12 commissioner in 2021, took over from Larry Scott, who was outgoing among harsh criticism, which included moving the Pac-12 headquarters to San Francisco, which has extremely high rent of uh, their office buildings. Klivikov tried to form an alliance between the Pac-12, Big Ten, and ACC for non-con scheduling, but it all kind of fell apart and never really got any kind of traction. And really all it did was open the door for the Big Ten to poach some of the bigger teams from the Pac-12. He tried to get a, a grant of rights, a, a new media rights deal that was going to set up to keep the remaining teams. This was before the uh, other teams jumped to the uh, Big 12. But it, it, the way it looked that the pack, the big part of the Big Ten was not going to be taking Oregon and Washington, so there was going to be nine teams left. Klipkov tried to set up a, a media rights deal, which included a grant, a grant of rights similar to something to what the ACC has that has more or less locked their teams in, and he was having a uh, looking to negotiate a streaming deal with Apple. That fell apart when the Big Ten decided to take Oregon and Washington. So when Oregon and Washington jump to the Big Ten, the Arizona schools and Utah were like, let's get out while the getting's good. They applied for a Big 12 membership, and the Big 12 was more like a come on. Like, like when you're playing hoops and you say, hey, yo, man, you got your squad. And it's like the Arizona, Arizona State, and Utah was looking at the Big 12 like, you got your squad. Big 12's like, like, nah, I ain't got all of mine. Can I run with you? Come on. And and that was that. Now the Big 12 has 16 teams. The Big 12, I mean, big part of the Big 10 has 18 teams. ACC still has 14, and the SEC has 16. We'll have 16 when Texas and Oklahoma move to the SEC next year. Are you confused? Is your geography all messed up? I know mine is. And... The thing with the Pac-12 was the media deal. It's always about the money. Follow the money. Plain and simple. You follow the money, that's where things are going to go. And the deal was going to be with Apple. The Pac-12 had this whole deal with Apple. And it fell apart. So what's left? The Big Ten and the Big 12 are now snickering as they more or less have destroyed the league that was angling for a piece of the CFP gold mine. Now, there are less conferences trying to get in with the CFP, the, the payout, the $80 million conference payout that will go for the CFP. Now, the ACC, they've got problems of their own. They're trying to keep recalcitrant schools like Florida State, 
uh, Clemson, Miami, North Carolina in line. Now these schools, bigger football schools, are angling for a bigger piece of their conference's media rights pie, thinking that they are quote-unquote carrying this league with their big names in big play. Clemson, <laughs> Clemson, I still think it, it, is still really new to the to the party because they've only gotten really good over the last you know ten or twelve years. But they figure they've got an angle. FSU down for a while now on the come up. Does that mean that they can break the media rights deal with the ACC and go fishing somewhere else? They're trying, but that grant in rights for the ACC is locking them in to 2035. Now, that, that, tie, that ties the 14 schools in with the media rights that has been signed. The money is decent, but it's not Big Ten or SEC money. Nothing's Big Ten or SEC money. SEC, for its part, is sitting quietly watching the infighting. If Florida State is able to break loose from the ACC, where are they going to go? Hmm... Take a, take a wild guess where they're going to go running to. And the SEC is going to go, come on, come on. For They pick Texas and Oklahoma from the Big 12, and they sit at 16 teams. They might still pick some teams from the ACC, like Clemson or Florida State, if they can get from out from under that media rights deal. The, the ACC... They, like I said, have been talk about Stanford or Cal going to that conference. And that's just map stretching at its extreme. And it makes absolutely no sense. Now, the Big 12, for their part, managed to rebound from the defections, pick up three teams in the American Conference, uh, four from the Pac-12, and an independent BYU to now be a conference that spans the nation and is across all time zones. The Big Ten is unwieldy at 18 teams, with the SoCal teams now kind of sore that Oregon and Washington are now West Coast teams along with them. They wanted to have the West Coast all of themselves as Big Ten recruiting places, and not have to worry about that Southern Cal and UCLA want to just fight amongst themselves for recruits, and not have to worry about Oregon and Washington up close. Now, the Big Ten more or less have destroyed its nemesis, and now have West Coast as a more or less exclusive recruiting territory for as a power conference. Will this be the end of the shakeup? I doubt it. But it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with the Pac-12. Can they survive? Can they move on from the whole mess that basically they created? It's going to be an interesting situation to say the very least. And just like that, it's over. The U.S. Women's National Team is out, out of the World Cup, by the slimmest of slim margins. A penalty kick that just got over the line in the penalty kick shootout sends the Women's National Team to a 5-4 loss in penalty kicks after playing 120 minutes of a scoreless tie with Sweden. The women's team got knocked out in the round of 16 by this tough Swedish team and has long been a nemesis. The game, as I mentioned, was scoreless through 120 minutes and it did go to penalty kicks where the U.S. missed a chance to stay level when Megan Rapino missed her penalty kick. And then the final kick by the Swedish team just got over the line. It looked like it was initially saved, but backspun enough and video review showed... The U.S. hopes were, were dashed, and the Swedish team moves on to play a really tough Japan team in the quarters. This is the worst finish for the U.S. team in five World Cup tries. They have managed to get to the finals of most of the team of the finals. They've won the last two of them. It was trying to be the first World Cup team, men's or women's, to win three straight World Cups. No team has ever done it. Men's side, women's side. Powerful Brazilian teams, those great German teams. No. They've never won three World Cups in a row. U.S. had won two of them in 19 and 15. They come close to winning it in 11, but lost to a plucky Japanese team. 
But what does it mean? What do, did the U.S., were they just a little too confident for their own good? I mean, I myself thought no one could, stand, could stay with the American team. That they were rough, tough, quick, the number one team in the world. Number one team in the world struggled against Vietnam. They won three to nothing, but it was one nothing at the half. And the Vietnamese, who weren't scaring anybody, pushed the U.S. a little harder than they thought they would be hook pushed. Then they took on a Dutch team, a team that they should have beaten, but they let them hang around, and they ended up with and they conceded a one-all draw. Then they played Portugal. They needed to win that to win the group stage. They couldn't do that. They drew with them. Scoreless draw. So instead of winning their group stage with one win, two draws, and no losses, they ended up finishing second and getting a poor draw facing a tough Swedish team along their nemesis in the, in the round of 16 where they were knocked out. Now the rest of the world some and some U.S. walks were quick to pile on the, on the U.S. team for losing. Uh, Lenneth Bierstein of the Dutch team basically said good riddance to bad rubbish calling them a big mouth team that got their comeuppance. Now, of course, the, 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 the idiot that is Donald Trump went on his Truth Social and lambasted the U.S. teams, calling them losers, and this never happened on his watch. What I wanted to tell him is just shut up, man. Just, 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 just shut up. Nobody wants to hear you, but I'll leave the politics out of it. I digress. The thing that, that made no sense to me was why it seemed that people kept trying to tie the social activism of this U.S. team to their play on the field. It still is going to be a watershed moment for the women's national team as older players like Megan Rapino, who, was, who announced her retirement, saying that this World Cup was going to be her last of national competition, bow out, and players like Rose Lavelle need to step up in leadership positions. Speaking of which, she needs to cool it on the yellow cards, on the Ferrilla tip. She wasn't available for the game against Sweden because she had been suspended for picking up too many yellow cards. The gap is closing fast on the women. They are still the number one team, even though that, that rating might shake up a little bit because they lost. They didn't get to the finals or win a World Cup again. But the gap is closing. When you have teams like Germany and Brazil and England not even make the knockout round. They were knocked out. They were eliminated in the group stage. When you have teams like that bounced early and you have nascent programs like the Japanese, like Cambo, like, like uh, Colombia, I beg your pardon, like Sweden, you have teams like that on the come up that are pushing the U.S. team, not afraid of their supposed dominance, not afraid of these ladies who have, for the last 8 to 10 years, have been damn near untouchable. But now when you have turnover, new players coming on, a new uh, uh, it, it's kind of, I liken it to when back in 99, when the women won the World Cup in the U.S. They won it, and then it was like a turnover of players. And you had to wonder, were these this new blood going to be able to pick up the pace? Were they going to pick up the thread right away? There's going to be a lot of questions that need to be answered. And who's going to answer them? It's going to be a very long rest of the summer and a lot of contemplation, not only for the players that are going to be coming back and playing, because remember the Olympics are coming up. And the U.S. struggled in the Olympics before winning gold. But you have to think the U.S. national team has a lot of questions to answer. And you're not sure who's going to answer them. Let's take a first time out, shall we? Come back with a quandary for Baltimore. I'm still trying to figure out why the Orioles broadcaster was suspended. We'll figure, try to figure this out. And we'll also look at... The Southern Division previews of the NFL, the AFC, and the NFC. Sportsman Hoodwood comes back at you after this. Is today your last day on Earth because you are being deployed to space tomorrow?
Have you just turned 18 and you're ready to get out of your parents' house? Has your granddaughter gotten her boyfriend pregnant? Whatever your reason, you need us at gottagetmarriednow.com. We specialize in last-minute weddings. Active duty, military veterans and retired discounts are available. Visit us at gottagetmarriednow.com. You're tuned in to Sports from the Hoodwood, the Internet's premier destination for no-nonsense commentary, thorough analysis, and logical insight on the world of sports. Here's the man that Wikipedia and Google call for sports fact checks, your host, KJ Green. You are back in the Hoodwood. My name is KJ Green, and I've always been a fan of announcers. I've always liked listening to the announcers' different styles. I grew up listening to, in baseball, listening to Hall of Fame announcer Marty Brennan announcing the uh, Cincinnati Reds. He had a folksy, tell it like it is, no frill style that was very plain spoken, very to the point. And that style endeared him to Reds fans spanning a number of generations. He announced for the Reds for 45 years and was one of the best, if not the best announcer I ever heard. I mean, like I said, I grew up spoiled. And I mean, I went from listening to Reds games to when I moved to Minnesota, listening to the uh, Hall of Famer Herb Carneal calling Twins games. He had a, another one with a straight ahead, you know, no frill style, but he got, he was straight to the point. He was the type of announcer that I, I thought if I ever did play-by-play announcing, I wanted to model my uh, style after. Now, with Marty Brenneman, if the Reds were playing good, you knew it. You knew you could tell in his voice. It wasn't over-the-top excited, but there was a, 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 you know, a pep to his voice. If the Reds were playing like crap, you knew it. And he would not hesitate to say, to criticize a play, be critical of someone's play in the field. If someone you know, butchered a, a ground ball, and you hear him say, that was just awful. That was just terrible. And he was not hesitant to be critical of players and management sometimes if he felt he deserved it. And that kind of announcing style, like I said, endeared him to Reds fans and a number of other fans who listened to broad baseball broadcasting. That's why... He won the Ford C. Frick Award in 2000 and is in the Baseball Hall of Fame. He, like I said, and I've had I had the pleasure of working with uh, Mr. Brenneman a few times. Straight ahead guy, very very low key, self effacing, really really good guy, and I always enjoyed his style. This is why the recent suspension of Orioles broadcaster Kevin Brown makes no sense. I've always felt that broadcasters should have the ability, the autonomy to be critical of teams when they need when they deserve it. When a team is playing bad, and I'm not saying totally rip them, but then again, I don't want a person to be an over-the-top homer. Homers are boring. They're 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 annoying to listen to, you know, they're up and down with their team, which is fine. But it, you want that you want a team if they're not playing good, you want the person who's describing the play-by-play, whether it's on TV or on the radio, to be able to tell you what's going on and be and, and, and not have live in fear of management coming down on them because the team plays stinks. But with Kevin Brown of the Orioles, good young broadcaster. He was suspended after detailing the Orioles' recent woes at playing at Tropicana Field. Now, the Orioles, by and large, over the last 20 some odd years, have not been a good team. Now, when I was growing up, the Orioles were one of the class organizations in baseball, always near the top of the divisions, 
always winning division fan. If they're not winning divisions, contending for them. I grew up Earl Weaver, always baiting the umpires. And then the Orioles kind of dipped out a little bit after winning the 83 World Series. But then they returned decent prominence. They were always a decent team. Since their last one, I think they've been made the playoffs maybe once or twice in the last 25 years. But the Orioles are having a fantastic season, leading the AL East. They play a fantastic June and July, passing the, the Rays, who started out 13-0, and were leading the AL East by a wide margin. They tracked them down. The Orioles didn't play well in St. Pete. The Tropicana Field was a house of horrors for the Orioles. And... Brown wasn't being overly critical. The Orioles have been good, very good this season. They're, they passed by the Tampa Bay Rays in the AL East and are currently leading them. Though, playing in Tropicana Field has been a house of horrors as of the last few years. Brown pointed out that the Orioles' three wins in St. Pete were as many wins as they had over the past three seasons combined. Now, that is a hustle stat. That is something that a statistician probably looked up, gave to the, to the graphics crew, and they put it on the screen. They put this on the screen. It wasn't like it was something that just was off the top of the head. And even if it was, it was a fact. It wasn't an opinion. It wasn't fake news. It wasn't hyperbole. The Orioles TV broadcast even ran a graphic detailing this it wasn't rumor, it was fact. Now, for reasons that have not been clearly explained, owner, uh, Orioles principal owner John Angelos has suspended Brown indefinitely, saying that Brown was quote-unquote belittling the team and portraying them as cheap. Is, is Angelos hearing something in, in his head? Somebody telling him some things that someone's making up something because Looking at what Kevin Brown said, looking at the graphics that were posted, nothing he said was untrue. Nothing he said was out of line. It was the Orioles are playing better in Tampa than they have in recent memory. And it's the truth. The Orioles for the last few years have stunk. The Orioles lost 115 games in 2021. The Orioles were horrid. And it was one of those things where you're going, make this make sense. Gary Cohen of the New York Mets broadcasters was quick to lambast the Orioles for their decision, as was Michael Kay of uh, the New York Yankees. Also lining up Jason Benetti of the fine broadcaster of the White Sox. And... Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm trying to name here. <laughs> I'll cut this out here, but Tom Karen of Tom Karen of the New England Sports Network also lined up some criticism, and Gary Cohen, getting back to the Mets broadcaster, pointed out that the Orioles ran off another fine broadcaster in 1996 because he was very critical of the team, John Miller. Now, John Miller's been the broadcast voice of the San Francisco Giants since 1997, but before he was in San Francisco, he was a longtime broadcaster of the Orioles. Fine broadcaster. One of, one of the real reasons to listen to Orioles uh, baseball uh, because of his play-by-play. But when Miller was asked about what was going on with Brown, he was visibly puzzled. He openly said he didn't understand why Brown was suspended. But Nettie pointed out there are 29 other teams in the Major League Baseball that would love to have Kevin Brown as a broadcaster. And the Orioles better watch out. They better take care. T take care. Because if they run off another fine broadcaster, a lot of broadcasters may be wary to go to Baltimore to do play-by-play -play because they'll feel like somebody over their shoulders 
criticizing what they're saying. And it wasn't something critical that Brown said. He was repeating facts. Now, there is talk that Brown may be broadcasting o Orioles games as soon as this coming weekend. Stay tuned. Continuing with our NFL summer camps, we now move to the southern divisions of the NFL, AFC and NFC respectively. And before I get into these divi this division, the one adjective that could be described for both of these is mediocre. Jacksonville won its first division title in quite a while. Actually, it was three years with a 9-8 and eight record. Tampa Bay won the NFC South with an 8-9 record. And I know a lot of Cowboy fans were all sorts of miffed that their 12-win team had to go on the road to play an 8-win uh, divisional winner. Now, I've always said that if you win your division, you deserve a home game. That I mean, that is something that is a reward for finishing on top. And people say, well, it should be the most games. One of these days, you're going to have somebody that, that's a non-division winner is going to win 12 or 13 games and end up having to play a quote-unquote road game in, in a bigger stakes game. I mean, not saying that playoff games aren't big stakes, but like a conference championship game where they're going to have to play on the road and play a team that didn't win as many or if not fewer because they are ranked lower because they didn't win their division. Win your division and you don't have to worry about it. Cowboys, I'm talking to you. Anyway, let's look at the divisions, I should say the South Division in the AFC. I'm going to lead off with my predicted uh, order finish and we'll start out in the AFC South, the Jacksonville Jaguars. Now the Jacksonville Jaguars won the AFC South with a 9-8 record, and many people feel like they arrived quicker than most people thought they should have, that they should have been a couple more years, you know, growing under Trevor Lawrence before they actually made that step up to the playoffs. Well, Judgment Day came a little bit quicker than a lot of people expected because the Jags have stepped up. And they added a thrilling wild card weekend win over the LA Chargers to pad the resume of the uh, nascent youngster Trevor Lawrence. Now this team is trending on the right track with a high-powered offense and a stingy defense. Get used to seeing the Jags at or near the head of the AFC South standings as they look to be there for the foreseeable future. Now the team I have finishing second in the AFC South is Tennessee Titans. Now. The Titans did a swan dive, a massive swan dive. They started out 7-3. Many people were thinking, okay, you know, business as usual. They're going to be around in the AFC playoff picture. You know, they could get a home game, you know, avenge that divisional loss to the Bengals. And then it fell apart. They lost seven straight. It was painful to watch them just take loss after loss after loss. Now, the Titans became stale, predictable, and in the end, on the outside looking in, and after losing six straight, they still had a shot to win the AFC South. But they crumbled in Jacksonville on Saturday, last Saturday night of the season to the arising Jacksonville Jaguars. And, and to be honest, Titans are not a very exciting team to watch. And I get the feeling that Mike Vrabel's seat is getting very hot, very fast. And I love Derrick Henry. Love watching him run. But his mileage counter is getting a little high. And it's way past his usefulness. And I've never been a Ryan Tannehill fan. Malik Willis can't move the ball. He can't move the needle. He can't move anything. And you're wondering how long it's going to be before Will Levis, the rookie from the UK, is going to get calls for. And it may be sooner than you think. Now, in third place, I have the Indianapolis Colts. They finished 4-12-1 last year, and the disintegration of this once proud and storied franchise is another thing that is painful to watch. This team 
was boring. It was predictable. Their offense was stale. Their defense couldn't do anything. They ran Matt Ryan out of the flat out of the league. This offense ran was just one of those that you couldn't get get your head around. Defense was a sieve. They gave up a twenty nine a thirty three and twenty nine point lead to the Minnesota Vikings, a team that dicey at best. But when you up 33-0 on somebody, it should be game over. And they blew that game. Jeff Saturday was the answer. So now, you got a new coach. Then you wonder how long it's going to be before Anthony Richardson is really going to be the starting quarterback. Is he ready? Right now, you've got Gardner Minshew. Is he still in this league? Wait a minute. Gardner Minshew? Good grief. He's not the long-term answer. You're wondering how long it's going to be before the aforementioned Anthony Richardson starts getting snaps at quarterback as a starter. Jonathan Taylor wants out of this mess, but Coach Poobah, Jim Irsay, ain't having it. And this is going to get messy before it gets any better. This team's a mess on both sides of the ball. And with a rookie coach, it's going to be a long year. Bringing up the AFC South out of the Houston Texans. Last year they were 3-12-1, and this is another team that's just a hot mess. You have C.J. Stroud, the, the, the much hollywood rookie from Ohio State, but he's going to be running for his life under that sieve-like Texans offensive line. This team is going to have a lot of work, and the faithful are going to have to have a lot of patience with Demeco Ryan. He's going to be a good coach. Believe that. But not this year. This team is a long way from contending. And C.J. Stroud is going to have a painful rookie season. You can put that in the books. Now, let's turn to the NFC South, shall we? And, again, it's by uh, how I feel they're going to finish in the 2023 season. I have the New Orleans Saints with the NFC South. They finished 7-10 last year, but they are gambling that Derek Carr is at least the answer right now. But let's be honest, it's a soft division and a number of weak teams skulking about 500. It won't take much to be able to capture this division. Now, Dennis Allen is not going to be long for the Big Easy if the Saints struggle to find their footing here. The team I have in second place finish in the NFC South is Atlanta Falcons. They finished 7-10 last year as well, and I have to admit, I have a little bias. Phil Bearcat, Desmond Ritter, it's a young coach. But you wonder how much rope that Arthur Smith is going to have before he gets hung. And that's not a, a, a factual, uh, literal term, but his seat is hot. And with the Falcons having not made the playoffs in a couple of years, the Natives are getting restless. And they wonder if Ritter is really the answer at quarterback. This offense is another one that is very stale, very predictable, and doesn't have a lot of the tools. And remember, Julio Jones is gone. So that's one less dynamic receiver that Ritter has to throw to. Yeah, and, yeah, and Smith does not really have the time to wait for Desmond Ritter to finally pick it up. I mean, both of those, their leashes may be very short. In third place, I have the defending NFC South champions, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They finished 8-9 last year, but that was behind Tom Brady. Tom Brady is now one for the ages. He's gone. And Tampa Bay is going to have to figure it out real fast. Todd Bowles is going to have to figure it out real fast. Baker Mayfield is likely getting his last best shot at being a starting quarterback in this league. And while the Bucs are still trying to figure their offensive identity out, they don't have a cognitive plan going forward. Can Todd Bowles really get along with any quarterback? The Bucs still have offensive weapons that Mayfield can utilize and hopefully turn his spiraling career around. But remember, the Glazers are not a patient bunch. And they will run a coach off quickly if they're not winning or have a plan for winning. I bring up the rear in the NFC South. I have the Carolina Panthers. They finished 7-10 as well last year. But they have a new coach in Frank Wright, who bounced back quickly to land on his feet in Charlotte. But like so many of their division 
divisional brethren, they have QB issues. And there's another team that has a, a young QB in Bryce Young. Now, he was a stud at Alabama when people wonder if that's going to translate to the pro game. But he'll have a reliable receiver and newly transplanted Adam Thielen. Now, the Panthers' defense still is fairly capable. Now, I have the Panthers last in the division, but like the other Southern division, this isn't set in stone. Any of the four teams could arise to, to be the divisional kingpin or muck it up enough to finish last. And there you have it. Next time out, we will finish up with the, the Western divisions, both AFC and NFC West. We'll see how those shake out. Let's take our final timeout. Come back with the Hoodwood Hot Five. Fat dap, head slap, and the final word from the wood. Hoodwood heads down the home stretch after this. I'm actor Rajim A. Gross. Some of the studios would like to scan our images and only pay us for one day's worth of work and be able to use our likenesses, our voices, our mannerisms as computer-generated characters, not only in the movie that we might be filming in, but in all future films as well. That's not fair. And I think the SAG board members that are fighting for my rights as an actor to work on a union film. So I just want to say standing in complete solidarity with everyone. Thank you. And headed for home here in Hoodwood. Let's finish up strong with the Hoodwood Hot Five. Fat Dap, Head Slap, and the final word from the wood. More quick takes for the Hoodwood Hot Five. Let's look at one of my favorite backflips ever. Joey Bats. Yeah, he was a jerk. Yeah, he was self-centered. But for what it's worth, that was one of the coolest bat flips in the gravity of the hit and the gravity of the game, the 2015 wildcard game where Batista hit a monster three-run homer off of you know, the Texas Rangers to cinch their wildcard berth was probably one of the most epic bat flips ever. And Jose Batista uh, called it a career and signed a one-day contract with the Toronto Blue Jays so he could retire Blue Jay. Say what you want about Batista, but he was one author of one of the coolest bat flips ever, and the Blue Jays decided to do right by him and make sure that he retired a Blue Jay. Now, of course, the Rangers were never very happy about that. There was a legendary fight between him and Roughnet O'Dor. Yeah, O'Dor socked him in the face in a fight the next spring. That was just rough. But tip of the cap to Joey Bats retiring a Blue Jay. Our second topic in the Hoodwood Hot Five and Quick Takes, Basketball Hall of Fame is getting ready to duck its class of 23, and this is class personified. You see the big names like Pal Gasol, Dirk Davidsky, Becky Hammonds, Greg Popovich, Jim Katie, Tony Parker, Jim Valvano, Dwayne Wade. That's just a roll call of who's who of basketball in the last 25, 30 years. But let's also look at some of names that you may not know that roll right off the top of the tongue but are well deserving of their induction in the, in the basketball hall of fame 
Do not overlook these names as well. Gene Bass, who won 1,300. 1,300. That's more than legendary Pat Summit. That's more than Shashevsky at the, at the uh, lower college ranks at Three Rivers College. One of his noto no notable uh, uh, players was Latrell Sprewell. Also, a name that you need not overlook is Gene Blair, who coached the women's Texas A&M basketball team to 444 wins, 2011 National Championship, and also you have to give dap to David Hickson, who coached Amherst in incredible 42 years. He won 826 games at the Division III school, two national championships, and he garnered two Division Three Coach of the Year. Of course, won't be greatly missed. If you did recognize the 1976 U.S. Women's Olympic team, the first time the women competed in hoops at the Olympic level, they rolled gold. And, of course, they had legends on that team like Nancy Lieberman, the late Ann Myers, and a player named Patricia Head. You probably know her by her married surname, Tennessee coaching legend Pat Summit. She was a player on that 76 squad. This class is cup. Runneth over with class. Third topic in the Hoodwood Hot Five. I read this and I just started laughing. There was a possibility, if you remember the, the uh, Eagles-Niners NFC Championship game last year where it seemed like one quarterback after another was falling by the wayside. Had the Niners pulled that game out, would have been a minor miracle in itself. And the Niners had no quarterback. Do you know who they were looking to sign to play just in the Super Bowl? Philip Rivers. Old man Rivers would have finally got his shot to play in the Super Bowl. Of course, that didn't happen because the Niners didn't win the game. And Philip Rivers is ancient as begin with. But it would have been kind of, it would have been, I think, a lot of controversy. Is like all of a sudden you have this ancient quarterback who never made the Super Bowl in his own right, all of a sudden suiting up late to get into get try to get a chip. I thought they'd been piggybacking in its worst way. Fourth topic in Hoodwood Hot Five. Eric Bieniemy is the offensive coordinator for the Washington Commanders. And some of his charges are complaining to head coach Ron Rivera that Eric B is a little too intense for their liking. Wait a minute. Where's the problem here? The Commanders finished 8-8-1 last year. The Commanders finished dead last in the NFC East. I would think that Biennemi would bring a modicum of toughness, accountability, responsibility to this team. Biennemi is a type, is a coach who is aching to prove that he is a capable coordinator and not just the rubber stamp of Andy Reid who has got him to Super Bowl rings. Miami, I think, should be a head coach. And his intensity, which may be off-putting to some players, might be the kind of welcome tonic that a team needs. I think other teams are watching. I think other teams are taking notes. I think Eric Bieniemy is not long for Washington because he's going to be patrolling the NFL sideline in 2024. You heard it here first. Okay, Bengals fans, I think you can breathe a little uh, more of a sigh of relief and stop holding your breath. Fifth topic here in the Hoodwood Hot Five is reports that Joe Burrow was, was seen before the Bengals' first preseason game against Green Bay on Friday night, throwing bombs of 50-plus yards and doing sideline-to-sideline side sprints. Somebody who's got a bad calf, she seems like he is looking a lot more spry than people were originally reporting. Uh, there were reports that Burrow could have been out four to seven weeks into the regular season, and there were some Kansas City fans that were laughing and glee going, yep, you're not ready. Your team's going to be two and five and not ready to take us on again. But I think Joe Burrow might be ready for the season opener against Browns, and the Bengals going to need it. Because coming right out of the box, you got the Browns and the Ravens right back to back. And you can't play around in that division. As I already outlined a couple uh, last week, AFC North is a no-joke division. Burrow better be ready. The Bengals better be ready if they want to defend their, their twice-garnered AFC North crown. That's my high five.
what's yours? And now let's look at our, our fat dab and head slap of the week. Fat dab of the week goes to the Philadelphia Phillies' Trey Turner, who sent a heartfelt thanks to Philly fan for their support. Now the newly signed Turner, who has signed a long-term deal with Phillies, has been having a fairly rough go at the plate so far this season. But Turner did uh, break out of a slump with a couple of home runs, and the Philly fans, notoriously hard on its on its superstars, gave him standing ovation after standing ovation, basically telling him, "Buck up, young buck, we're behind you." Say what you want about Philly fans, that they are fickle and rude and have notoriously booed Santa Claus and cheered Michael Irvin when he was down on the turf. But when they love you, they love you. Ask Allen Iverson, the Hampton, Virginia native you would swear was born and raised in Philadelphia the way that city worships him and treats him like a native son. Turner, moved by the... Uh, gratitude shown by Philly fan took out full page billboard ads electronic billboard ads around the city of Philadelphia thanking him, them for his for their support during his struggles and promising that he would get better you like to see when fans and players have some sort of symbiosis and are pulling on the pulling the same way now our head slap of the week <laughs> goes to the White Sox Tim Anderson. Now, Anderson, as you can see here on the replay, started a fight with Jose Ramirez of the Cleveland Guardians after Anderson took umbrage to a hard slide by Ramirez. Two got to a fight. Anderson got clocked. <laughs> he got knocked out. Now, to add insult to injury, not only did Anderson get knocked out, he got a suspension, six games, the longest of anybody who was involved in that fracas between the White Sox and the Guardians. <laughs> you get chin check and you get docked six games. How do you feel now, better or worse? And now without much further ado, let's go to the final word from the wood. When does it end? I mean, seriously, when does it end? I led off the show talking about the realignment of college uh, teams from the Pac-12 and the Big Ten and the Big 12, shifting teams faster than dealers can shuffle cards. And I grew up in an era where the Big Ten was Midwest, the Pac then Pac-10 was West Coast, the Big Eight was Midwest, Southwest Conference was kind of Southwest. I remember when the Southwest Conference was eight teams from Texas and Arkansas. Arkansas abandoned the Southwest Conference in 1990 and moved in the SEC. It was a kind of a minor move, but no one really thought that much of it. South Carolina joined the Southeast Conference from the then Metro Conference, and the Southeast Conference became a 12-team super conference. 1992, the radical concept of the conference championship game was then formed as you had the teams from the Eastern Division and Western Divisions of the Southwest Conference meeting in Birmingham, Alabama for a championship game. This was considered a radical idea at the time, and many people thought that it wasn't going to work. Florida, who was an underdog, led Alabama until late in the game when Antonio Langham made a key interception and a pick six. Alabama won the game and went on to win the national championship. Thus, the SEC Conference Championship game then thought a radical idea took off. When this happened, you had other teams, other conferences looking around going, how can we get that kind of money? because the SEC championship game was must-see TV. The Southwest Conference broke up and disbanded in 1996. 
Some of the teams moved to the Big 8 Conference, and they became the Big 12. Some teams moved out west to the WAC. Other teams, other conference, kind of looked at the at the conference realignment and poo-pooed it, shook their head. We'll never do anything like that, they said publicly. But privately, they're going, man, how can we get that kind of loot? How can we get those kind of eyes on us? Eventually, the ACC, the Big 12, the Pac-12, and the Big 10 all end up having championship games. They, did, they split up in divisions and played championship games. For better or for worse, that's the way it ended up being. Now that you had other conferences that grew exponentially but didn't have championship games. Then they fell by the wayside. The Big East grew and grew and grew and then burst as teams from the Big East like Syracuse, Pitt, and Miami jumped to the ACC. The ACC were poaching teams left and right. Teams that were caught looking the wrong way, like my alma mater Cincinnati, end up being shuffled out of a power conference into a lesser conference, the American. You had other teams, you had other schools moving from conference to conference. Nebraska, tired of being in the Big, big 12, moved to the Big 10. Colorado and Utah, moved to the Pac-12. And you had teams shuffling from conference to the others, with the smaller conferences scrambling to keep up. It was a conference arms race. Then, in 2021, the silliness began. UCLA and USC decided they were going to join the Big Ten. Wait, what? Colorado jumps back to the Big 12. Utah follows along with the Arizona schools, out of the sinking Pac-12. When does this end? You have super conferences now of where 14 teams seem like a big team, big deal. Now you're going to have conferences with 16 and 18 teams. When does it end? When do the schools say enough? And when do is there some sort of authority that's going to step in and say, this is madness? And all this has been driven by football. Basketball, baseball, and other sports have had to scramble to keep up. And the travel is going to get worse. And the person and the people that are going to be hurt by it most aren't the per college presidents, aren't the try again. Aren't the college presidents, aren't the athletic directors, it's going to be the students and the fans that are going to be having to scramble willy-nilly to keep up. TV dollars are going to be flowing, but one of those days, one of these days, that money's going to dry up, or it's going to slow up. It's never going to dry up. It's going to slow up, and when it does, you're going to have a number of teams that are going to just break off and do their own thing. And when that happens, it will be uh, some sort of apocalyptic Armageddon for college sports as as you and I know it. Mix in the NIL deals. And things are going to get a lot crazier before they get any more sane. And that is the final word from Wood. Now with the music coming up in the background, you know that means that your time here in the Hoodwood is just about done. And thank you so much again for your visit. Now the show's email is kjgreen at sportsfromthehoodwood.com. You can send me emails regarding show topics, both past and future, questions, comments, and both praise and criticism. I welcome your correspondence, and I will try to get back to you in a timely manner. Now the show's website is sportsfromthehoodwood.com, and has a back catalog of the show that's going back almost 11 years. We're going up on our 11th anniversary here in both audio and video form. So you can check that out if there are shows that you may have missed. You can join the debate and conversation on the Sports From the Hoodwood page on Facebook. It also has video podcast simulcasts, as well as other topics, funny stuff I find on the web, plenty of great sports debate. Lots more you can uh, post. I post often and respond to member posts frequently, and we conversate quite often Join the debate. Now, the video versions are also on YouTube. Uh, please hit that subscribe button, smash that like button for more great content. 
the link to the podcast is going away from Twitter. Yeah, I've decided I'm not going to follow uh, to X, so we're going to be going to Tribal. There's going to be more details on that coming up. So it's going to be Tribal. It's going to be at Hoodwood Sports. It's going to be changing soon, so keep an eye out for that. You'll find more interesting stuff there. I'm going to move, move, move stuff over there, and I will be uh, interacting with people there as well. Now, the audio version is on Spotify. Amazon Music, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, iTunes from Apple, and a host of other fine podcast platforms and providers. Now, if Hoodwood is not on your favorite, do ask for it. Drop me a line, and I will do what I can to get it there. Special thanks, as always, to Rave Pictures for their production assistance to the show and website. That's it, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Until next time, from the Hoodwood fellow sports fans, I'm KJ Green, 30. Sports from the Hoodwood is a Black Bandit Productions and Enterprises presentation of a 551 Audio and Films production.